Because although God is just and God is holy and righteous and man is a sinful being demanding the full wrath and punishment of God, have the courage to accept what God has provided, what God has done. Welcome to another episode of the Carpe Fide podcast, where if the shoe fits, you wear it. And if the truth hurts, you bear it. I am Justin Gruber. And I am Jesse Gruber. And today we hope you will seize the faith. Before we get started, this final session is basically a presentation of the gospel, to be completely honest with you. It's what it is. The Apostle Paul in Romans 15, I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he goes on to unpack the gospel to a group of people in Rome that are already believers. So I just want you to know that statistically there are some of you here today who have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of you that are, the gospel is still good news that you need to hear once and once again. So if the, hearing the gospel in its fullness bores you or has become old news instead of good news to you, uh, then I even pray during this time that God would renew your wonder at what he has done for us in Christ. So let's pray once and then we'll begin. Father God, we come to you now in this final session. Asking, Lord, I'm asking, that you would be kind and that you would humble us as we hear the news of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Lord, grab hold of our hearts now and either, Lord, sovereignly bring us into a saving relationship with you through Jesus or deepen our commitment and our love and our resolve to be men and who are gospel-driven in all that we do. Lord, we need spiritual eyes to see these beautiful spiritual realities. Those who do not know you can hear the gospel, and it has no value. But to those who have been given life in Christ, this is the most glorious message in all creation. May we see it as such. May we be just abundantly satisfied with the love that is found in Christ during this time. May we see that here is the truth of what humanity needs. And may we give ourselves to the proclamation of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. So there was a legendary coach named Lou Holtz. Anybody know, have heard of him? Right. Lou Holtz said the following, quote, It's always better to face the truth no matter how uncomfortable, than to continue coddling a lie, end quote. That's the challenge that's before us during this hour. To have the courage to face the truth. The truth of who God is, of who we are, of what's the problem and what is the only solution, how should we respond that we face that and that we see that we would have courage to not only face it, but to respond to the truth of who Jesus is. 
As I said a moment ago, there are some here who perhaps have never truly come to faith in Christ. Maybe you're acquainted with Jesus. Maybe you've sat in the stadium and you've looked down in the field and see Christ out there and you're a fan. With a lot of respect, great teachings, but you've never truly come to a place of being broken and convicted of your sin and need for Christ as your Savior. My prayer is that God would open your heart during this time. And for those of us here who are more than fans, but true followers of Christ, that this would simply deepen our resolve to be men of gospel ministry. Either camp, the response is the same. We must courageously deal with this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our big idea for our time is this. The most important act of courage a man can make is to come to the cross, repent of his sin, and trust in Christ. Let me personalize that. The most important act of courage you can ever make is to come to the cross to repent of your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more courageous you can do. That's an act of courage there that God has to supernaturally work in you, but it is the most courageous thing. So we're going to go and we're going to have a fairly in-depth look at the gospel. The gospel begins, first point, the courage to look at the character of God. Men, it takes courage to lift your eyes up and stare upon who God is. Not the God of your imaginations. Not the God that is portrayed on TV. I'm talking the God of Holy Scripture. The first step in becoming a follower of Christ is to see God as He presents Himself. And that begins with the holiness of God. God is holy. Holiness is not a part of who He is. Holiness is who He is. See, Sometimes we're courageous. Sometimes we're timid. Sometimes we're loving. God is not sometimes holy. God is always holy. Everything that God is, God always is. And everything about God is holy. It is a holy love. It is a holy wrath. It is a holy justice. It is a holy compassion. It is a holy mercy. Holiness is the only attribute of God elevated to that level in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You never see love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. It's holiness alone. It colors all that God is. To say that God is holy means two things, at least two things. Yes, holiness does mean that God is perfect. That God is free from any stain or blemish of sin. That it also means that God is unlike anything else. That he is completely set apart. Think about it. Somebody asks, what, Alex, what do you like? Who are you like? There's points of reference that I can be compared to. I am like a man. I can be compared to other men. I am like other husbands. I am like other fathers. I am like other brothers and sons, but God cannot be compared to anyone or anything. That is why when Moses said, who should I tell them that you are? I am who I am. God is unlike anything else, anyone else. Nothing can be compared 
God cannot be compared to anything. He is holy. He is set apart. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4, talking of the holiness of our great God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Everything about him is good and right. I just quoted Isaiah 6, 3, where the angels in the heavens sing, Holy, holy, holy. We see that picked up again in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Or how about Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, His way is blameless. God is perfect, men. His character will always be perfect. God will always be pure. Do you realize you and I do not know anyone perfect? You do not know anyone that's holy in the way that God is holy. The word of God calls his redeemed sons and daughters holy, but that's because God has set us apart and God is sanctifying. But that perfect holiness belongs only to God. And do you realize that our human minds, our finite minds as men, cannot even fully comprehend the term? You can't picture anything that's absolutely perfect because everything you know is stained by sin. God is unlike anything that any mere mind can conceive. God has not and God will not ever sin. And God despises, loathes, hates all that is not holy. Listen to Habakkuk 1.13. Your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you cannot look on trouble. Or Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. <clears throat> Do you see God is so holy he cannot even look upon sin. In the, he hides his face from you. Do you know God as holy? And do you love him for it? God is also just. We need to understand that the reason God is just is because God is righteous, meaning God will always act that which is in accord with his character. He will always do the right thing. He will always uphold the right thing, and he will always rightly judge and bring justice upon that which is not right in good, in accordance with his will and his character. God loves righteousness is why he displays justice. Psalm chapter 11, 
Verse 7. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. So the common, uh, but Yahweh of hosts will be lofty in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. This is the starting point of understanding the gospel, because if you do not understand God rightly, everything else falls apart. God is holy, holy, holy. God is perfect, right, and just. Our culture wants to paint holiness as if it is some type of killjoy. Holiness is beautiful. We know this to be true. We know that the idea of purity is beautiful and good. This is why a father's heart breaks when he finds out his daughter was not pure on her wedding day. Breaks the heart of a father. It's vivid imagery, but we understand that purity is important. It matters. God is pure. He is good. He is just. He is righteous. This is why a fallen world does not like God. Does your understanding of God, does your understanding of the gospel have the holiness and justice of God at its core? If not, courageously see God for who he is. See how God has revealed himself. This holy and just God is also a creator. And the perfect, holy, and just God, who needs nothing, who has been infinitely happy for all eternity, decides out of the overflow of his joy, he is going to create. And so what does he do? He creates people. He creates men, and he makes them in his image. You are made in the image of God. He made us in his image to be like him in certain ways, to reflect him in certain ways, so that we could be in relationship with him. Have the courage to look at the mirror and say, I am really not a cosmic accident. I am an image bearer of the holy and just God. Have the courage to look at people and tell them you are a creation made and fashioned in God's image. Don't hide away from the truth. It is the glory of man. Nothing else in all creation can say that. Stars, universes, galaxies, angels can't even claim it. Genesis 1.27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's stunning. And being made in his image, we see in the creation account something very unique, men. God said, let there be light. Light. 
But it doesn't say God said, let there be man, and man popped in. No, Genesis 2, 7. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the man became a living thing. Verse 21. So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon man and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he made, taken from the man into a woman. When God made us in his image, it was a hands-on activity. God plunged his hands into the soil and fashioned us. He breathed his breath into us. Have the courage to understand that you have value, dignity, and worth because God has created you. You are not a cosmic accident. Curious George is not your uncle. You did not crawl out of the ocean with scales. You're not any of those things. You are a person distinctly made and fashioned by a personal and mighty, holy, and just God. That is hard to believe sometimes. Have the courage to understand that, to believe that, and to proclaim that. Oh, how our daughters and our young women in the culture need to understand that their value, dignity, and worth is because they are made in God's image, not because some immature boy in high school tells them they're beautiful. The gospel begins with God and who he is. The gospel harkens back to the creation of man. And being made in his image isn't talking about your body, your physicality. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Being made in God's image is talking about something far deeper, far truer. It's talking about the fact that you are a spiritual being. You're more than a bag of bones. God making you in his image, as we saw in 2.7 means that he created you rationally with a mind, with an immortal soul. He has given you the ability to grow in knowledge and righteousness. He's given us the ability to rule, to, to create. He's given us the ability to walk in holiness. He's made you a moral agent. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 4 of 14. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Man has a judicial sentiment. Man has an understanding of moral accountability because they are image bearers. This is why, I don't know where you're at in this room, there is no such thing as an atheist. Every single person knows there is a God, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as it says in Romans 1.18. To say there is no God, you know, Dawkins and these guys will say that's courage. That's cowardice, because you're believing a lie. You know there is a God. You know he is just. You know he is true. You know he is holy. You know he has made you. And you're a coward if you deny that. Courageously acknowledge what is true. You are an intelligent, rational being. Or you have the ability for intelligence. You have a moral nature. You have personality. You have affections. You have creativity. You communicate. You have introspection. 
All of those things matter for a variety of reasons. Here's why it matters the most. Have the courage to acknowledge God made you in that way so that you can be in a relationship with him, so that you can receive his love, and so that God can love you back. Be courageous enough to acknowledge that reality. Don't believe the lies. Go against the culture courageously and say, no, I'm not an accident. I'm a creation by a holy and just God. And he wants to know me and I want to know him. You have purpose because you were created by God. God has made you for himself. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us that. You were, being made in God's image means you exist to glorify God in everything that you think, say, do, and desire. You are not a law unto yourself. And if God has made you in his image, if he has made you for himself, and if he is ruling and reigning over all creation, it means there is no part of your life that does not matter. That's a glory. These are glorious truths. Most would take no issue if we stopped right there. But here's the reality. Even though all that is true, none of us experience it naturally because as much as we are image bearers made for God and in relationship with God, we have all rebelled against God and all of us come into this world hating God. You are a sinner by nature and by actions. That's the sad reality that you have to be courageous enough to admit. You have to have the courage to look in the mirror and admit, I'm a sinner. I live for myself. I don't live for my creator. Don't deny it and be a coward. Be honest with yourself. You know in your heart of hearts that you are a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A newborn child comes into this world and he or she is a sinner by nature. You don't have to teach these kids to sin. Take a pacifier from a three-month-year-old and if he had the strength of a man, he'd kill you. Selfishness, hatred is in the heart of every man. We have to be courageous enough to see ourselves for what we really are apart from God. Sinful. And the reason that you and I are a sinner is because long ago, when God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, Adam rebelled against God when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And ever since then, a sin nature has been passed down to all people. Romans 5.12 makes this abundantly clear. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. He represented all humanity in the garden. Now, I can already predict some people think that's not fair. But we actually do think it's fair, and we operate by that rule. Because I know most of you guys here have talked as being sports fans. 
We don't protest. We understand that if one player commits a foul, the whole team gets penalized. Adam committed a transgression against the Lord. He broke the law that God told him not to. He told him, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Adam ate from the tree. He instantly experienced spiritual death, and the physical death was to follow. And that has been passed down to you and to me, to your children, to your friends, to your family. There's no honor in denying it. Be courageous and acknowledge it for truth. But not only did he represent you in the garden, your own life gives enough evidence to make this abundantly clear. Listen to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I want you just for a moment to imagine that your thought life was put onto the big screen. And we invited a hundred of your closest friends and family to watch your thought life on the, right there on IMAX. Even thinking about this, you feel the weight, the shame, the, shame, the guilt, the disgust. Because you are a sinner. You are fallen. You do nothing perfectly good. Even your best deeds are tainted with sin. I love my wife. I don't love her perfectly. I love her with, infused with sin in it. My kids. Listen to Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 18. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb, which their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they've not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's you. That's me, apart from faith in Christ. Just look at the foolishness that abounds in our world. We butcher babies. And we call it women's rights. We teach children sexual depravity in our schools starting in kindergarten. We call it enlightenment. We destroy homes with no-fault divorces. We steal, we lie, we cheat, we manipulate. We use sex as a tool. We're sinners. Every single one of us. There is none who does good, not even one. 
that's your problem. That's my problem. That God is holy. That God is just. That God has made me in his image. That God has made me to be in a relationship with him. And I said, no. You said, no. I want to do me. Your actions, to put it rather starkly, your life is nothing else than flipping the bird to God every minute of every day. You spit in his face with your actions, with your thoughts, with your desires. Somebody asked G.K. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? They were supposed to write a paper. He wrote, responded with two words, I am. And because of that, you are condemned by God. Have the courage to understand the penalty. As a result of God being holy and just and you being a sinful enemy of his, the wrath of God abides on you. Eternal hell awaits you. God's pure, just wrath will be poured out on you. You cannot outrun it. You cannot hide from it. You cannot buy your way out of it. It is coming. It will find you. There are no innocent people in hell. So understanding these three realities, who God is, who we were made to be, and what we've done, have the courage to see the problem. The courage to see that God is good and you are not. You know, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, he's God. Why can't he just say, I forgive you and just sweep it under the rug. Wouldn't be just, exactly. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are alike an abomination to Yahweh. And yet that's what people want God to do. If God would just forgive and not be just, he would cease to be God. And we don't live that way. Let somebody come in and rape and murder your daughter, your wife, your mother. You want the judge to be like, you know, he said he's sorry. We're good. Absolutely not. You would demand the judge to display justice. And if you, a sinner, desire justice when another sinner is wronged, should God, who is holy and righteous and just, not bring about justice? You just don't like it, and I don't like it because we are the objects of it. God must punish the guilty and uphold his righteousness. So again, our biggest problem is that God is good and we are not. It was in a Psalm chapter 7, Psalm 7, sorry, verses 11 and 12. God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation every man, or every day. If a man does not repent, 
he, speaking of God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. Think of the imagery there, men. Because this is the state of your soul if you are not a follower of Christ this morning, this afternoon. The bow of God is pulled and the arrow is aimed directly at your heart. It is Jonathan Edwards said, it will be drunk with your blood. That is the reality. Have the courage to call it for what it is. If the story stopped here, there would be no gospel. It would just be bad news. But there is more. Because although God is just and God is holy and righteous and man is a sinful being demanding the full wrath and punishment of God, have the courage to accept what God has provided, what God has done. God saves. God being holy and just, also tells us in his word that God is love, mercy, and grace. And so God has responded to the plight of man. God has responded to your problem. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. The one who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Men, I want you to hear this. You know, we don't like to talk about love as men. We're men of action, valor, but we don't talk about love often. But love is at the very heart of the mission of God. It was the love of God that sent his son to save sinners for his glory. If you are in this room sitting here right now and you are a follower of Jesus, the reason you're a follower of Jesus is because God chose to put his love on you. He poured it out extravagantly. And if you are in this room and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, know that God stands ready to pour out his extravagant love upon you if you will respond. We will see that shortly. And if you've maybe you're in a place and life has just been hard, you've been getting smacked around and you've been struggling with sin, and you're backslidden, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're thinking, I'm a failure. God doesn't love me. If you've trusted in Christ, God will always love you, because God does not change. He loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You are perfectly loved, and with an unchanging love. So this love is by the sending of his son. Perhaps no chapter or section in the New Testament captures this better than Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the good news. Here's the hope. Here are some really important words. Verse 24, being justified, legal term. That means God from heaven looks down upon you and he declares you righteous. He declares you innocent. He declares you good, not because you've done anything, but because of what Christ has done. When you put faith in Jesus Christ, God sees you as living the life that Jesus lived. Jesus' perfect righteousness gets deposited into your spiritual bank account. You did nothing to earn that amazing, amazing deposit. But it's yours by virtue of faith, and God the Father looks upon you, and what he sees is his perfect son. You are declared based on what Jesus has done. And on the flip side, your negative balance is deposited into the account of Christ. And so as Jesus hangs there on the cross, arms stretched out, pierced, broken, bleeding, God the Father looks down upon heaven, looks upon his Son, and all he sees at that moment is your sin on Jesus. And so he pours his holy wrath upon Christ, and in three hours, Jesus empties the punishment of hell that would have been an eternity for you. By faith, you are justified. You are declared righteous. It says, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption, it's a financial term. It means to purchase back. It was a term that was connected to the slavery practice at that time during the Roman Empire. It was the payment that was made to secure the freedom of a slave. Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his burial, and his resurrection, has paid the price to secure your freedom from sins, power, penalty, and punishment. You've been ransomed, you've been redeemed. Verse 25, who God displayed publicly. Jesus wasn't crucified in a dark corner where nobody saw it. Jesus was crucified publicly for the entire world to witness and for the entire world ever since that point to keep hearing about. God was not not secret in bringing about the glorious salvation of sinners. God wanted this to be a spectacle for all of history to know. You can say the crucifixion of Christ was a viral event. He made it public so that everybody would know it and so they would never be forgotten. He says, publicly as a propitiation. That's one of those beautiful words that we are losing more and more. Translations, they're great translations, but there's translations that are removing that word. Some say an atoning sacrifice. Some say the mercy seat, but it's propitiation. And here's what it means. 
To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God. God's wrath must be satisfied, meaning his wrath must be adequately filled for what the penalty was. We sinned against a holy God. Jesus being the perfect, perfect spotless Lamb of God is the only one who could pay that price. He appeased, he satisfied God's wrath against sin through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death. God is holy, and therefore any offense against him must have been dealt with equally. And I want to be clear here. Jesus didn't simply satisfy God's wrath against sin. Jesus satisfied God's wrath against you. He says, through faith. whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Faith is the means by which this perfect, invaluable work of Jesus is applied to your life through faith, through trust, through believing. I like how Dr. John Piper says, through treasury. Is Christ your greatest treasure? Do you treasure, not simply believe, because we believe lots of things. Do you treasure as your greatest treasure what Jesus has done and who Jesus is for you by faith? Goes on to tell us. Verse 26, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. God shows himself now to be to be just, to be holy, to be righteous. God shows himself to have dealt with sin and upheld his character as the spotless Lamb of God hangs there gasping for breath and God's wrath being poured upon his head. But he's also the just and the justifier. God does here the impossible. Do you, the wisdom of God in the gospel, it breaks human comprehension. No mere mortal would have ever devised this kind of plan. Every religion has always been man working his way back into God's good graces. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only truth of salvation, God provides the means by his own work to show himself holy, just, and righteous, and yet loving, forgiving, and merciful. Both happen simultaneously. Righteousness and mercy meet at the cross. He shows himself just by punishing sin in Christ. He shows himself gracious by forgiving sinners at the cross in Christ. It is a glorious, glorious message. But do you realize even there if we stopped, it isn't good news. Because many a man have died professing to be a Messiah. He's buried for three days. And then the most unthinkable happens. He's not there anymore. The tomb is empty. Death could not hold him. 
the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in our churches, we don't show Christ on the cross in our sanctuaries because he's not dead. He's not there. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling and raising, reigning as the resurrected king. Without the resurrection, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no imputed righteousness. There'd be no eternal life. We'd still be dead in our sins. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes such a strong argument for the importance of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 22. We'll just read that section. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all the men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You're going to die. Think about that. You're going to leave that much closer to, you're going to leave closer to death when you leave here this, this afternoon than when you walked in this morning. But your death will simply be a bodily one. Your spirit by faith in Christ will live on forever in, Christ, in the presence of God. And then there will be a day where Jesus will return, crack the sky, and he will give us glorified bodies because death does not hold us. Death is now God's messenger to bring us into glory. Jesus put death to death when he resurrected. Have the courage to believe it. I know it's extreme. That's a hard thing to believe. I've buried some people. You've probably buried some people. I'm looking at my spiritual parents getting older, seeing their bodies fall apart. The reality that pretty soon I'm probably going to be the one to have to preach at their funeral weighs heavy on me. My biological mom has had cancer three times. Every time I'm wondering, is this it? And she's not a believer. And every time I look at those realities, I think of the fact that he is risen. When my mother got cancer the worst, went down to visit her. I was there the day before surgery. We went to Disney. We were in the car, and we were just kind of making small talk, and she was talking about her surgery and her fear. She was like, Alex, you got to do this, you got to do that, so you don't get cancer, this and that. And I'm like, if I get cancer, I get cancer, Mom. I can't stop it. I'm not worried about it. I'm not scared to die. She's like... How could you say something so foolish? You don't know. I was like, I do know what happens when you die. She's like, how? Nobody's ever died and came back. I'm like, there is one. And he told us what awaits. The process of dying, I'm not looking forward to. But I'm not afraid to die. Why? Because he went there and he came back and he told us and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Trust in me. And this is life, he says in John's. Let's just turn to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
Christ risen means by faith in him, I'm actually experiencing eternal life here and now by my union with him. You get to taste the eternal life to come through Christ's resurrection now by faith. You need not fear it. You can courageously look death in the eye and say, great, you're my chauffeur. Because you're bringing me to the banquet, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have the courage to look at it for what it is. Have the courage to see what Christ has done. Have the courage to receive it. So this is our last point here. Second to last point, have the courage to respond what God has done for you and his son. Have the courage to repent of your sin. It takes courage to look in the mirror, to recognize you're a sinner. It takes courage to confess, yes, God, your judgment upon me is true. And it takes even more courage to cry out in faith to Christ and say, I am going to turn away from my sin and turn to Christ. That is what to repent means, to turn away. It is courageous to acknowledge and confess, but that isn't sufficient. You must repent. You must turn away from your sin. Have the courage with King David to say from Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Say that with David because you believe it and then turn from the filthy ways of living and turn to the Holy One. How do you know if you've repented? It's an important question, right? Think I've repented. How do I know? You know that you've repented of your sin when you have genuine sorrow, shame, and hatred for your sin. Paul says in Romans 7.15, For what am I working out? I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. I want you to take a moment to truly consider it. Please consider, I beg you. Do you really have sorrow, shame, and hatred for your sin? Or are you more just worried about the consequences of your sin? Do you hate the fact that you looked at pornography? Or do you just hate the fact that you looked at pornography and it might come out sometimes, you might get busted? Do you hate the fact that you went out and got roaring drunk? Do you hate that or do you hate the consequences of it? How it made you feel the next morning? Do you hate the fact that you're short-tempered with your wife? That you raise your voice to your children when your anger gets the best of you? Or do you just hate the tension it brings to your home? Do you hate your sin? Or to put it another way, as I heard somebody once say, do you hate that you broke God's law or do you hate that you broke God's heart? This is crucial for us to understand, men. 
But again, that's only step one. Hatred of your sin, sorrow and shame of your sin is not enough. True repentance must be accompanied by a turning away from it. You must give up your sins, not only hate your sins. You don't stay in a toxic relationship with your sin. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Are you turning, are you washing the filth of your sin off you through prayer, repentance, confession, the word of God, the local church? Are you? Repentance is more than a hatred. There's an action involved. We've talked throughout these sessions about acting. Act. Here's the courageous act. The most courageous act you can do is to turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 3.10, and the axe is already laid at the root of, I mean, sorry, John the Baptist says, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The good fruit begins with repentance. Repentance is the first fruit I'm going to put it this way. You can't have a friends with benefits type of relationship with your sin. It's over. It's done with. There's a break, a divorce. You've walked away from it. None of us are ever going to perfectly repent, but we can truly and faithfully keep repenting. To put it another way, this may be a little more kind of to the culture, don't keep sin as your side chick. You're in a marriage with Christ. The church is his bride. Have the courage to accept what God has done for us in Christ and respond with repentance, respond with faith. Place your faith in him, trust in him. Everybody likes to talk about faith these days. People say, just have faith. Have faith in faith. It's like faith has become some magical or mystical thing that just makes your life better. Most people, most people use faith, they just mean a belief that things are going to work out. Positive thinking, send good vibes. But the reality is, let me put it this way, do you realize faith saves no one? Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Your faith is only as good as the object that your faith is rooted in. True saving faith is the belief, the certainty that everything that God promised in his word that his son would do has been done. John 3.16. We can all say it all out together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Only son, only begotten son, beloved son. In this verse, we are told that God the Father has demonstrated his saving, sovereign love towards sinners by sending what was most precious to him. His son, the second member of the Trinity, who is God himself, takes upon flesh 
lives a perfect life. Never sinning. Always doing the will of the Father perfectly. Being wrongly accused and yet you're completely in control of this, dying a substitutionary death on the cross, like we've been looking at, taking the wrath of God for sinners, and if you believe, you're saved, you're forgiven. This is the great promise of God in Scripture. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your house. Men, believe in Christ and you will be saved. There is not another true statement that a man can say. And it is the only way to be saved. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is your only way. That is the only way to be forgiven of your sin and receive the love of God. The most courageous decision you will ever make is the decision to see God for who he is, to see your condition for what it is, to repent of it and to trust in Jesus. And that is the most courageous example you can ever set to your family. I'm going to fail as a father. But you know what? I, one thing I guarantee you I'm not going to fail at is making sure my son knows that I'm all chips in on Christ because he made me and he redeemed me. And he's my only hope. When you do that, God promises to give you assurance of salvation. He tells us that in 1 John 5, 13. And these things have been written so that you may know you have eternal life. A true Christian is a new creation. You have been made new. You are not a fixer-upper. You have been recreated entirely. And God promises... To continue to perfect that work, Philippians 1.6, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The God who saved you promises to sanctify you and he will bring you into glory one day. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are not your past. Your past may explain you, but it doesn't excuse you. Your past may explain you, but it doesn't define you. You are new in Christ. I, I grew up a horrible individual. I was a liar. I was a cheater. I was addicted to pot. I was addicted to cocaine, acid. I got my girlfriend pregnant when she was still in high school. I married her only to cheat on her over and over again. To bring my daughter into the world and cheat on her mother. Then to divorce her and leave her as a single mom for a long time. And yet God looked down on this piece of garbage and said, I'm going to bestow my sovereign, saving love on him, and I'm going to make him my son. And then God really wanted to show off in my life, guys, because then God used me to proclaim the gospel to my ex-wife so that she came to faith. And then God said, I'm still not done. I'm going to actually renew your marital covenant. We got remarried. 
And I got to share my God, the gospel with my father, who I, where I learned how to cheat on my wife, because he cheated on my mom. And guess what? My dad turned away from pornography. My dad repented. My dad became a follower of Christ. My dad is a Christ follower, and he's still married to my mom. This is what God's love does. This is the gospel. It takes courage. Do it. And if you're a follower of Christ here today, hold on to this gospel. There is strength there that defies human comprehension. So I just want to close and say, if you are here right now and you are not a follower of Jesus, I beg you, we all beg you to take that step of courage, to see God for who he is, to see your condition for what it is, to come to the cross of Christ, to confess that you are dead in your sin, fully deserving the wrath of God and hell for eternity. But then to accept the offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel, that if you look to Christ, he will bear your punishment, he will give you his righteousness, he'll give you eternal life, you'll be adopted into a family, you'll be perfectly loved by God, and you will be with him forever in all eternity. Take that step of courage. Be justified, be forgiven, be adopted, receive his love. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in that glorious name, the name above all names, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved, the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our King. Father, I thank you for myself, my life, and every man in here who took that step of courage. We thank you, Father, that we take that step of courage and you promise to hold on to us. You promise us, as we saw yesterday, nothing can separate us from your love that you will hold on to us so that we will persevere to the end, that you will preserve us unto glory, Lord. Help us love you in greater and greater measure each day as we meditate and marvel over the mystery that is Christ crucified. And I pray for any man in this room right here, right now, Father. Humble them, chop them down, get rid of their pride. May they have, may they have a humility and a brokenness of their sin that they will come forward, Lord, encourage and say, I repent and believe. And we pray for Missio Day Church, Lord, to continue to herald this powerful and beautiful message of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.